Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Markets with Pim Fox and Lisa Abramowitz on Bloomberg Radio. My co-host and colleague, Lisa Abramowitz, is on holiday for this July 4th week, but he's not on holiday. Leo Grohowski, he is the chief investment officer for BNY Mellon Wealth Management, helping to manage nearly $250 billion. He joins us in our 1130 studios. Leo, thanks for coming in. Happy July 4th. Um, Tell me about people's perception of how markets, how equity markets specifically have behaved. Because if you look at the S&P 500, we're up not even one and a half percent so far for the year. But if you're invested in stocks like Netflix or Amazon.com, you got a different perspective on how the market is done. Yeah, no, no doubt, Pim. I think um, also after last year, I think investors, um, uh, most of them ratcheted down their expectations for this year as a whole. And so as we tally sort of the mid-year report card, you know, returns are very unexciting, um, low single digits for most balanced portfolios. And this remains a very unloved market. I mean, investor sentiment um, has actually moved to the negative side. And uh, and so uh, there's enough skepticism out there where it's become more palpable. And um, I think when you combine that with investors, you know, looking at a lot of profits over the years, um, it's not a surprise to see some selling pressure here on the on the equity markets. Where does the negativity come from? Oh, my goodness. I think uh, just, you know, open up the paper or, you know, uh, watch the, the TV programs. And most of it is on the geopolitical front. And certainly today, market participants are very concerned about um, tariffs and trade and uh, elections and what's going on in Germany and the UK with Brexit. So the, the big picture macro geopolitical front um, is, I think, of most concern. The good news is we're going to quickly you know, move into earnings season here. And, and finally, we'll have more fundamental news to sink our teeth into. But it's really been about the, the global headlines macroeconomically and geopolitically. The earnings reports, uh, you got to kind of make the, the, the sort of distinction between gap earnings and non-gap earnings, right? Because when you look at the non-gap earnings, things are doing just great. But when you look at gap earnings, it kind of tells a different story. Yeah, I think I think most market participants and most strategists are looking at, you know, operating earnings for the S&P this year. Um, and we are, you know, somewhere between 155 and, and 160. So if you take the midpoint of that and a market at 2700, you know, the market's trading at what I think is a pretty undemanding P.E. multiple of 17 times in the context of a 10 year Treasury at a 285. Take that out to next year. We've got what we think is a pretty conservative thought around earnings at 170. The market's at a multiple of just under 16 times. So um, the, the market feels more expensive than it really is. And the market not having done much while earnings have been so strong has really allowed valuation to get back into what we consider to be the, the reasonable territory. Does the Fed continue to raise interest rates along that four rate hike path? You know, it's a tough call, but if you forced me into the yes or no, I would have to say yes, particularly on the heels of Friday's PCE report, right? We're sort of getting into holiday mode. I didn't find a lot of investors focusing on, but the uh, personal consumption expenditure index at the core came in at 2%. 
right? And the headline was 2.3%, a little hotter than what most were expecting. And I think with that being a, a critical component in the Fed's Cuisinart of decision-making, um, I would say that, that the leaning is for them to end up doing four. So add to your equity holdings now? Uh, you know, we're, we have been and remain overweight equity. Okay, so a lot depends on, you know, have you rebalanced lately, right? But we would be modestly overweight in equities, favoring U.S. equities and favoring small and mid cap. Small cap, unlike our comments earlier, you know, had a really good quarter, up nearly 8% on the Russell, on the Russell 2000. I would be looking at this more as an entry point than exit point for most investors. And we're still looking at money market funds here in the U.S. with $2.83 trillion in cash. There's a lot of dry powder out there. And are they waiting, what, for interest rates to increase and then make something out of that money? Because that's still going to be taxed, and you're not going to really end up with much more than inflation. And, and a lot of that cash has been waiting for quite some time, really for the big pullback in the market, right? The 20% plus correction that many have felt, you know, clearly with all of the challenges out there and, and how well the markets have done, we must be due for that 20% correction. There are and, a lot of market timers. I mean, people really think they can time this. Well, I, I think there are enough of them that uh, certainly have a lot of money sitting in either cash or near cash that have really set out a pretty good portion of this bull market, right? It's been very dangerous to be an investor concerned about wealth preservation when you also have to digest the news flows week in and week out. Yet, uh, you know, we're looking at a market that's up 300% in nine years. And so I think a lot of investors feel they missed that big run and need to wait for sort of the big pullback. That's not our view. But that's what I sense when I'm out traveling the country. Do you get the impression that people are really paying attention to what's going on with U.S. Treasuries and, excuse me, whether that 3% threshold, you know, is such a big deal, particularly for the 30-year or even for the 10-year? Not, not so much. I was in here a few months ago, and we were, you know, sort of where we are now on the cusp of 3%, and we actually exceeded that 3% for a while. I, I think it's a psychological level, which will cause a pause, right? But I think we've already recalibrated, right? A lot of the the uh, earlier part of this year was about recalibrating first to higher earnings and then quickly to the potential for higher interest rates, including the 3% Treasury. So I would argue most of that is in the market, but let's have the conversation if yields are 35 to 4% on the 10-year Treasury note. That would be a surprise and something the market is not equipped to handle at these levels. What about consumer spending? Will that filter into, let's say, a call for dis, uh, consumer discretionary stocks? You know, consumer discretionary stocks have really taken it on the chin. Um, and um, the consumer balance sheet and now income statement is in very, very good shape. So, you know, here too, we're, we, we are and have been underweight in the sector. But if we're thinking about the next 12 to 18 months entry or exit point, probably be looking more at an entry point given how weak the group has been. But let's keep in mind... A lot of these stocks are dependent on imports, supply chain involving China. And so there's going to be a bit of a cloud of uncertainty, I think, overhanging this consumer discretionary sector for a bit. But consumer balance sheets, income statements are in good shape. And this Friday, we get an employment report that should be another good one. Yeah. What do you think? What are we going to get? What kind of print Well, the we over-under on non-farm payroll is looking like around 200, right? And uh, I think many folks won't be around to be seeing it. But uh, I, I would be, you know thinking that that feels about right. I think the bigger number to watch will be average hourly earnings, right? Because that's what set the market in a tiz in, in February when we got a hot number there. So that's the number we're focusing on. 
Thanks very much. As always, Leo Grahowski, he is the Chief Investment Officer for BNY Mellon Wealth Management, helping to manage nearly $250 billion. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox. Tesla, the company, says it has reached a milestone that is critical to Elon Musk's goal to bring electric cars to the masses. is having to do with the production target for the Model 3. 5,000 of the sedans in the last week of the second quarter. Here to tell us more, Liam Denning, our energy, mining, and commodities columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And you can follow Liam on Twitter at Liam Denning. All right, Liam Denning. As the energy mining and commodities columnist, you get a nice little sort of change in a way because you get to talk about an auto company. You wouldn't necessarily get that uh, in most things, but um, this has to do with the battery technology and the ability of uh, of Tesla to sort of leverage this technology. What do you make of the uh, the milestone achievement? So, um, you know, it's, it's a milestone. It's been achieved. Uh, I think the, the the bigger question we have to ask ourselves with Tesla is is what do these milestones really mean? So, you know, if we break it down, last week of uh, of June they produced just over five thousand um, Model Threes, um, you know, thereby reaching the uh, the target that that Elon Musk had set. We should say a much reduced target from what was originally envisaged about yeah you know, two years ago. Um, but then if you if you look at the rest of the quarter, actually production taking last week out averaged about 2,000 a week. So clearly this uh, this final kind of burst week for the quarter was was really engineered by the company. They really wanted to hit that target. Um, but you know, we're talking about a 60 billion dollar company here. And if you're really going to value Tesla at that level, uh, it needs to be able to show that it can actually, produced you know high quality cars at high volume day in day out and i think as much as people bid the stock up monday morning it's actually slightly down at this point correct yeah it's but backed that, off but that initial pop i think reflected people saying hey it's hit the target that's great um but really you you need to be thinking about the bigger picture here which is you know what's the sustainable production rate all right, you you before you came in, you said that you had been at a conference in in Las Vegas having oh, to do with lithium, week, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, wonder if you could just describe sort of your larger, your bigger picture perspective on the future of uh, battery powered electric charged vehicles. So I will. Uh, I'm definitely in the camp that I think uh, electrification of vehicles is at this point an unstoppable trend unstoppable unstoppable now uh, and certainly the the uh, the theme i took away from last week's conference on on lithium is that broadly speaking the 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 line showing where electrification of vehicles is going um is going up now people debate what the steepness of that line is um you know but even the most bearish Skeptical guys that I met last week don't think that electrification is a fad uh, and, and will kind of just peter out. Um, I think there are good reasons, um, particularly pertaining to the biggest growth market for autos, i.e. China and to an extent India. They have good reasons to electrify their vehicle fleet. They also don't have quite the same um, infrastructure legacy 
that we have here, uh, which in some ways gets in the way of electrification. Do costs need to keep coming down? Yes, but historically they have been coming down, and there are just good reasons to 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 go for that. Whether it's it's um, you know it's combating pollution, whether it's uh, combating uh, dependence on oil imports, which is a growing problem for for China and India. So, yeah, I, I am I am optimistic about the future of electric cars. Whether Tesla will dominate that uh, and thereby justify its sixty billion dollar valuation, I'm much more skeptical. The uh, the electric car scenario though comes with a big uh, sort of input, which is someone's going to have to produce that electricity in order to charge all those batteries. Is That's that going to be renewable sources, or do you believe it's going to be a mix of renewable as well as fossil fuel? I think uh, if you're talking today, it's absolutely a mix of both. And and in China, for example, a lot of it is is coal, and that's one of the uh, criticisms leveled against electric vehicles that we're simply swapping one set of emissions for another. I think what that misses is that over time, uh, renewables are becoming a much bigger part of the generation mix. And if you think about a battery electric vehicle, it's essentially a platform that allows you to use different forms of energy inputs over time, whereas obviously an internal combustion engine, it burns oil. That's all it ever does. In in that uh, in that scenario, uh, do you believe that the U.S. automobile makers like GM and Ford and even uh, Fiat Chrysler, do they have the technological wherewithal to take advantage of this trend? Uh, I'm certain they have the the uh, the technological know-how, and GM, uh, you know, obviously is making pretty good progress on it in in a much less flashy way than say Tesla. Um, I think the bigger problem for those companies is that um, they're, they're having to deal with a, a much more multi-speed world. In in yeah, they have to do two days. at least two things at the same time. They got to make profits selling the cars that currently exist, given the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Plus, they have to plan for the future that you're describing. And also, a third element, which is that a lot of their growth is in other countries that have a very different outlook from what we have here in in the US and and so in some ways they're having to spread their R&D budgets in a in a much more complex way than they would have had to do you know 10 20 years ago what did you take away from the uh, the conference that you went to in in Las Vegas having to do with lithium uh, of course one of the inputs for lithium ion batteries i think the biggest takeaway was that this industry is is sort of at this moment where it's poised between greed and fear so uh, lithium stocks sold ho- sold off quite heavily uh, earlier this year after a massive run up um, in uh, 2016 and 2017, uh, and I think the problem is is this: they do all see this future of, of greater electrification, which will require much higher lithium production. Most people are looking at a horizon of, of the early 2020s, 2025. The problem is they need to get financing to produce the lithium, and a lot of these companies are pretty small and even though the um the investment need is put at like 15 to 20 billion that's a lot of money for this sector so they need to persuade people to actually start investing in these projects thank you very much for being with me liam denning always a pleasure energy mining and commodities columnist for bloomberg opinion follow him on twitter at liam denning coming up bloomberg politics policy power and law thanks for listening i'm pim fox This is Bloomberg Markets with Pim Fox and Lisa Abramowitz on Bloomberg Radio. 
As Amazon explores ways to expand its delivery capacity from leasing uh, its own cargo planes to experimenting with drones, it is also moving into a new business to allow individuals to start their own delivery business with as little as $10,000 of an investment. Here to tell us more about this is Satish Jindal. He is the president of SJ Consulting Group. And Satish, uh, you're an expert when it comes to moving things from point A to point B. Just give people a little bit of your background. And what would you do if you were running a logistics company and Amazon said they're getting into your business? Well, you know, Pim, it is so relevant here that what Amazon is doing is in many ways uh, duplicating with minor changes the model that RPS, which is today known as FedEx Ground, which generates 15, 16 billion in annual revenue, uh, started with that model, and that is to leverage the entrepreneurial spirit of American people and give them an opportunity to own a business and be part of a bigger enterprise. And FedEx Ground approach to this is what they called ISP, independent service provider, uh, Amazon calls them, you know, delivery service partners. And it has got the similar uh, model here where individual can set up a business, hire some employees to drive for them, lease vehicles to buy them. And what Amazon is doing is no surprise to the companies like UPS and FedEx because Amazon is such a huge shipper with 7 million packages a day. And Pimp, to put it in context, that is almost two and a half times more than the volume DHL was delivering in 2008 and nine before it left this country. Satish, tell people uh, your expertise when it comes to RPS, which, is, as you described, is now FedEx Ground, so they understand where you're coming from. You know, I was part of the founding team. I helped with that model, with the changes that went about. I worked directly for the CEO, Dan Sullivan, who was a great mentor for me. And uh, the success of FedEx Ground is to a large extent based upon being able to leverage that model, which allows you to have a large fleet of delivery vehicles and people without you having to put up the capital, just kind of like the way McDonald's and Subway and and other companies expand using a franchise model. This is, in some ways, akin to that. And I think it is a very good approach for Amazon to have an expanded delivery capability because it cannot rely upon the other three big partners that it has to meet its growing need. What role do you think the brand of having Amazon on the side of those trucks and on the uniforms of those making the deliveries will have on the success of this business? It is huge. That brand is more recognized than a UPS and FedEx at this point, even though it's a younger company. Startup costs are estimated to be as low as $10,000. Do you buy that? Yeah, because you don't need much in startup costs. You can lease vehicles. You can lease the technology you're going to need, which most people already have, is your smartphone. Every driver has its own personal one. Just reward them for making use of it. And you can start with a few drivers. And as you expand, uh, you have the resources and you can, uh, it's just exactly the way FedEx does it. Will this take business away from FedEx and UPS? Now, that's a little complicated question, and I'll try and answer it for your audience. One is, the about 
90% of Amazon business today is being done by USPS, UPS, and FedEx in that order in terms of volume. Going forward, I expect the total volume between the three to remain the same from Amazon. But because Amazon is growing at 20%, all that growth that they're bringing in, I see that moving to these new uh, options and approaches that they're taking. So they will get a smaller percentage of Amazon volume, but in absolute volume, it will not be any less. Last point to you. The uh, the president uh, has uh, talked about a potential reset of uh, U.S. Postal Service shipping rates because of Amazon. Uh, what can you tell us about that relationship, just to put it into some context? You know, it is a relationship that works for both. Uh, post office is better off as a result of having Amazon volume, and Amazon is better off. But I would say that the if this DSP program that Amazon has rolled out probably was in the making already, but hearing that the president is putting his weight behind this relationship that could potentially result in a slightly higher price the post office may have to ask Amazon. Amazon is prepared to say, you know, there's a certain limit to which I can absorb. Otherwise, I've got my own network to create a competitive uh, response. Right. So, you know, yeah, you can raise the rate, but I've got other options. Thanks very much, uh, Satish Jindal. He is the president of SJ Consulting, talking about Amazon and the logistics business. Shares of Amazon are up nearly 45% year to date. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Tim Fox and Lisa Abramowitz on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Markets is brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network, home to the industry's most satisfied advisors. Prepare to be swept off your feet by the broker-dealer RIA, who has been putting relationships first since 1979. Visit Commonwealth.com. Well, uh, chocolate specifically chocolate from Hershey and other food items from Treehouse Foods, they are going to feel the effects of counter-tariffs that were put in place by Canada. They're just some of the companies that are going to be affected by this move. Here to tell us more about what's going to happen in Canada as a result of these countermeasures is Carl Shimada. He is the chief strategist for Cambridge Global Payments joining us from Toronto. Carl, thank you very much for being uh, with us. Maybe you could just outline exactly what you believe the effects are going to be on the Canadian economy, and then we can kind of get into the details. Sure. So, you know, certainly the the escalation in tensions and, and the, the direct costs on the Canadian economy are likely to be fairly substantial here. Um, there's been a real shift in sentiment among Canadian businesses in recent months. Uh, a lot of concern about whether uh, U.S. markets will remain as robust as they have been. And as a result, we're seeing a toll taken on business investment. However, uh, you know, when we look at the grand scheme of things, this still remains effectively a rounding error in the uh, in the grand scheme of uh, trade between Canada and the United States. If NAFTA is not renegotiated successfully, will that still be a rounding error? No. <laughs> Uh, no, that would certainly be sort of the nuclear option uh, with respect to trade between the two countries. Um, that would reset us most likely to WTO rules, uh, which would imply a rise in tariffs and a dramatic slowdown 
in uh, trade as well as investment flows into Canada. And, and Canada does remain heavily uh, dependent on investment flows from the international community. So, you know, this is something that, uh, that negotiators on both sides, I believe, uh, are looking to avoid at this point. Would this be a short-term or a long-term effect? Uh, if we see NAFTA fall apart, we have a short-term knee-jerk reaction that would happen, and that would, uh, you know, likely push uh, Canada very close to recession. Um, however, in the longer run, you would see things equalize a bit. So the first thing and probably most important thing that happens with this type of trade negotiation is a uh, FX-related effect. If we see depreciation in the Canadian dollar, that puts Canada on a more competitive footing and tends to uh, outweigh some of the impact of higher tariffs. And so, you know, in the long run, what you could see here is a bit of a snapback in the, in the Canadian economy. Um, but of course, that initial toll would be quite devastating. Carl, would we see an increase in inflation in Canada in as much as the Canadian government is putting a 25% tariff on steel products, 10% on aluminum and consumer goods? Uh, so far, so as far as our model suggests, we're looking at a 0.1% increase in Canada's official inflation rate. Um, the reason being that this is, you know, extremely small. Um, if you look at the overall amount that's involved, it's about 12.6 billion U.S. dollars. Um, so, you know, when you look at that uh, against overall trade, that is not enough to, you know, really shake the uh, the household budget in Canada. Um, of course, if Trump does move forward with auto tariffs and things like that, that would change that picture and uh, and you would have a resulting impact on inflation. Now, all of that said, uh, you know, that's the tariff impact. But the fact is that the Canadian dollar has fallen roughly 5% on trade-related fear. And that also has a follow-through effect on uh, on inflation in Canada and effectively crimps household budgets. What is the current thinking in Canada about the potential for automobile tariffs? The current thinking, I think, is that it's mutually assured destruction. Um, the, the numbers really suggest that the United States runs a small surplus with Canada in autos and auto parts, um, and that, uh, that Trump will run into you know, very stiff domestic opposition if he does move forward with, uh, with applying tariffs on the sector. Um, and of course, you know, if he does apply it to Canada, he also has to apply it to the EU in some sense. And uh, that, you know, brings us really into a full scale trade trade war against, uh, you know, parties that that Trump may not want to antagonize to that degree. Um, but I think, you know, the interesting thing here is that if, if you look at how the EU and Canada are responding so far, it is very much a political uh, a political game that is afoot here. Um, you know, I think the the Canadian negotiators and the EU negotiators understand that trade imbalances are fun are fundamentally financial imbalances. So what they're doing is targeting uh, Trump allies, uh, congressional di- districts that uh, that support Trump and and particularly large businesses in those congressional districts. And so, you know, if you look at one sector that uh, that commands an immense amount of respect in the American political establishment, that's the auto sector. So I would not suspect that uh, that, you know, that things go too, too far in that in that area. Carl Shimada, thank you very much. Chief strategist Cambridge Global Payments joining us from Toronto. 
speaking about Canada's economy and retaliatory tariffs against the United States. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.